Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 6, verse 22 to 40. This is the word of God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perish, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who have who sent me. And this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much, Emily. Before uh, we begin the sermon uh, today, again, we're going to be in this text, so just keep your fingers in John chapter 6, 22 to 40. Let me just say a few things about the theological cohort. Tazar was exactly right that the theological cohorts that you could sign up for, and today's the last day you could sign up for that, is that it's, it's, it's our way as a church to offer to you something like a seminary-level class without it being a seminary-level class. And it's it's a deeper theological study. It's, it's, a, it's, it's studying the Bible systematically. It's presenting to you uh, doctrines in a deeper way. And one of my favorite analogies of why we do this would be, would be this. On Sunday, you come and you come to worship the Lord. And as you come to worship the Lord, you're reminded of the truths of God. It's like eating a really delicious meal. You know, I love eating in a good restaurant. And I, I, you know, when I eat a, a, good, uh, 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 a good plate or whatever, uh, courses that are served to me, I don't think about how they make it. I just enjoy it. You know, I just enjoy it and I get nourished by it and I, I'm amazed by it. I Instagram about it or something like that. And, and I don't think about what they do in the kitchen because I think it would just kind of stress me out, right? 
And so that's the sort of thing that we think expect on Sundays, especially during our sermons. Our sermons are meant to give you the Word of God in a way that is applicatory, in a way that applies to your life, in a way that is digestible, in a way that makes you think, but at the same time nourishes you, um, and so that you would receive the Word of God and be fed by it. Well, the theological cohorts are like stepping away from the meals and going to the kitchen. And there, you're going to learn all about the nitty-gritty. You're going to learn what it means to be biblical. You're going to learn what it means to study systematically. You're not only going to know why we preach the way we preach on Sundays, but you're going to know why and how. And um, the theological courts, therefore, is not going to be the same sort of experience that you would get on a Sunday where you're, you're, you're fed by the Word of God. And hopefully there will be some feeding. There will be some tasting. But in theological courts, you're going to be wrestling really deeply with the truths of Scripture. There will be... Um, more logical arguments for you to go through. There will be more syntactical, grammatical things for you to go through. There will be um, more old 19th to, to first century texts that I'll quote at you. And you'll learn Latin terms and you're going to be pushed. Um, hopefully um, in a way where you can understand the Bible systematically. And in a way that po- we, we, we can't possibly do on a Sunday morning. Um, so I hope you would sign up and our, our theological cohort for this coming September is Union with Christ. Um, and that's just a fancy way of, of discussing really what it means to be saved. Um, a lot of us here maybe have been Christians for a while and you understand that salvation is by grace alone. But a lot of you still have questions. Well, if it's by grace alone, then why do we still have to do good works? If we're saved completely apart from good works, then why are there still imperatives, commands in Scripture for us to do good works? Well, what's the relationship between grace, therefore, and works? That's one thing that would, that would come out of our understanding of union with Christ. Um, also, well, certain things like if we're already safe now and we're definitely going to be going to heaven, why should we still study the Bible? I already believe in Jesus. My salvation is guaranteed. Why should I still want to keep growing? Well, union with Christ addresses that. And what do we do with those passages in Scripture that even though we're saved by grace alone, these passages in Scripture still tell you about how in the last day, you will still be facing a judgment on whether or not you have done good. How, does, how do things go together? Uh, what's the logical structure behind it? Uh, what does it mean that we're, we're going to be just like Christ, that we're going to suffer with Him and rise with Him? What does it mean that He's the first fruits of our salvation? What does it mean that He was the first and the forerunner of our faith? What does all these things mean? These are all abstract concepts to you. And I'm sure when you're reading your Bibles, you're wondering, how does it all go together? Well, hopefully come to, your, to the theological cohorts. We have 22 people. At first, I planned it for, to be for just for 12. Um, so the last day to sign up, if it's 25, we're definitely going to close it off. Um, so please do. Um, I hope it'll be a wonderful opportunity for some of us. And that's my plug for the theological cohort. And I hope that suffices for you, Tazar, as well. Great. Thank you. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 6 today. We're continuing in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, verse 22 to 40. In our series on the Gospel of John, we've, we've continued to see, friends, that um, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the only light of the world. And wherever He goes, wherever He turns, all of these things that occur are our People who are confused about who He is, people who are rejecting who He is, people who seemingly accept who He is, 
only to find that, that they, they accept him for the completely wrong reasons. And in John chapter 6, we saw that Jesus fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men in their households, most likely. And they try to make him king. 6.15, remember, that's the key verse. They try to make him king, but Jesus withdrew himself. Why? Because Jesus wanted to communicate that he's not primarily a mere feeder of our bellies. He's not primarily a miracle worker. He's not primarily here to meet your immediate felt needs, but rather him feeding people, him healing people, him doing all these kind of great works and miracles and signs. There are signs that point to something deeper. A deeper need, a deeper hunger, a deeper thirst, and, and who he is in a deeper way. That he's not merely a prophet, like Moses. He's not merely someone that can provide for your physical needs. He's not merely someone that can teach you things from the Old Testament. He really is your savior and he's fully sufficient. And that's the theme over and over again in the Gospel of John. And right after that miracle, we see this incredible other thing in verse 16 to 21 that Pazar preached from last week, where Jesus walks on water. It's kind of an interlude between this miracle and what's about to take place here in verses 20 to 40. And, and 16 to 21, where Jesus walks on water and declares to his disciples that he's the great I am, sets this up for the dialogue that is about to take place in verses 20 to 40. We as the readers know what the Jews in verses 22 to 40 don't know. That Jesus is no mere man, no mere miracle worker. He walked through a storm and declared himself to be Yahweh, the great God of the Old Testament. And whatever's going to about to take place now, as these people in verses 22 to 24 cross the sea to follow Jesus, cross the sea seeking more bread, cross the sea seeking more works, cross the sea to, to, to know more about who Jesus is, we are already told who Jesus is. He's the great I am. He's the light of the world. He's the one who can walk through a storm. And he's the one to fear more than storms. And he's here for eternal life, to provide for us eternal life. And friends, if, if we're reading this passage quickly, we're going to miss the, the deep conflict in this passage. Verses 22 to 71, that's a long chunk of text. Verses 22 to 71 of chapter 6 is one long debate. It's a long debate. It's a back and forth. The Jews are going to say one thing, and Jesus is going to counter it. And then the Jews are going to reply back with another thing, and the, Jesus will have none of it and will counter it again. And the Jews will, in, in these, in these uh, uh, responses by them, reveals really what they think Jesus is or who he is. And the Jews are, are responding in a way that exposes who they are and exposes what their hearts are like. And so from verses 22 to 71, we see this back and forth, but seven of them, and we're only going to cover four today. We're going to cover from, from, from verse 22 to verse 40. And just remember, this is a back and forth, a dialogue. And I think what this text represents, friends, is this. When you're reading this passage, and as we go through it together, verse by verse, is this. Don't think about yourself as different from these so-called disciples and Jews who are questioning Jesus. What they're going to question Jesus about are the questions of your heart. What they're going to challenge Jesus with are the challenges that come in your heart intuitively, naturally, 
almost by gravity, you're pulled towards these sort of thoughts, towards these sorts of resisting tendencies. What you see is not a mere debate that took place in history, friends. What you see is a cosmic battle between your theological views and your natural tendencies to prone to wonder and God's perspective on reality. So don't abstract yourself from this debate. Locate yourself within it, listen to it, see where you are within it. And, and again, don't, don't just skim through this because friends, if you read on all the way to verses 66 especially, the 71, by the end of this debate, friends, all these people that tried to challenge Jesus who thought they were following Jesus, they were even called disciples in verse 61 to 66. They left Jesus. The same people that were fed by Jesus that tried to make him king in a short span of three days left him. They were so disappointed, so disillusioned, so traumatized even, so, so disappointed at this debate, so disappointed at Jesus' responses, or not say disappointed, let's say, so misunderstanding of it, so confused by it, so grumbling against it, that they all, by the end of this chapter, are going to leave him. And if you read it quickly, you're going to miss that. And in chapter 7, verse 1 to 3, you know what it says? By then, in a single, in a single chapter, by chapter 7, verse 1 to 3, it says the Jews were seeking to kill him by that point. The same people who try to make him king in verse 15 are the same people who by chapter 7 began to plot killing him. Why? Because of what is going to take place in these few verses. And friends, I was just telling Tazar this morning, I'm so disappointed in myself at this, at this sermon because there's no way I could do justice to this, go home and meditate upon it, and... It's just one of those passages that, that's just going to grip you if you really get what it's saying. And, and I hope you can't sleep at night because of this, this, this passage. I really hope you have a God-driven insomniac attack because, um, because this, is, this is the kind of passages that should grip you. This is the kind of passage that should hold you so tightly, so make you terrified, and so make you amazed. Christianity says you're so sinful that you are so exposed and naked before a judging God who has you in his whims. He has an untamable will. And you're going to get that here. But Christianity at the same time is so optimistic that even though you're laid naked and exposed, God pursues you and God says he has given you to his son. You're going to get all this today. And I pray, I pray that the next 40 minutes, friends, you feel it. You feel it. Let's pray before we enter into it verse by verse. Father, we thank you so much for this holy word. We tremble at the thought, Father, that the words that we're about to read, the words that we're about to go through, Father, represents not merely our fellow human beings of the past, but continue to resonate and continue to be present in our hearts even today. And help us, Father, now enter into this debate. Help us participate in it. Help us see that we too are part of the world and that you are the only light. And help us feel the weight of this, that you have died on the cross, even for people who resist you in precisely this way. 
Amen. Amen. So, friends, verses 22 to 40, uh, 22 to 24, sorry, presents the setting of this, right? Remember, Jesus crossed the sea, uh, apparently not by boat. Verse 22 reiterates that. Jesus crossed the sea while, alone while the disciples got on the boat. Jesus crossed the sea alone. Presumably, he walked on water across the sea. And the crowd saw that they, he crossed the sea, and so they, they crossed the sea with him. Look at verse 25. The crowd was so seeking of him that when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And friends, we have four points from today's sermon. These four points are tethered to um, one exchange. Each exchange represents a single point, I think. Um, so the first point that we're going to understand today are, are two kinds of food. There are two kinds of food, and this is verses 25 to 27. Um, because why are there two kinds of food? Because the crowd is going to present one kind of food that they're seeking for, and Jesus will tell you about his kind of food, the food that he truly provides. That's verses 25 to 27. The second point will be from two contrasting ways to get to this food. That's verses 28 to 29. The crowd will again represent one view of how you would get this sort of food, and Jesus will represent a contrasting view of how you will get the true food. The third point will be about two contrasting ways of reading scripture. Again, the crowd will represent one way of reading scripture. Jesus will represent another way, a counterpoint of how to read scripture. And and final point, two contrasting views of who decides who gets the bread. The crowd will represent one way or one view of who decides who gets the bread and Jesus will represent another way, who decides who gets the bread. And again, there will be more exchanges from verse 40 all the way to 71. We're just going to cover four exchanges today. And friends, if you've been coming to CCC, maybe you've been coming here for a while. Uh, You've been listening to our sermons on SoundCloud. You know um, how Tezar and I preach uh, the Bible. You're going to be able to discern three things we normally do. We have three-point sermons normally. Here's our structure. You're going to know it. By By the time you've been coming here for a year, you're going to know our structure of the sermon. Our first point normally is this. Here's what we need to do. Our second point normally is, here's why we can't do it. Our third point is, here's how Jesus does it for you. And if you've been coming to CCC, you're waiting for it. You're waiting for it. Give me the gospel, Gray. You're waiting for that third point. Give me, give me Jesus. All right, I am so sorrowful in my sin. I'm waiting for that third point. Give me the gospel. Give me the gospel. Here's where it hits. Here's where it hits. I know my failures now. I know what I need to do, but I can't do it. But here's the gospel. Well, I'm going to break that tradition here today because in every single exchange here, friends, you're going to get the gospel. Um, And I hope it's not, you know, anticlimactic or something because you're going to get the gospel at every point. But I hope it works out well. Um, I'm going to break a little bit of that CCC tradition. And that's what it means to be a gospel-centered church, I guess. We're going to get the gospel in all four points today. Um, Great. So they, they, they've, this crowd has followed Jesus from verses 22 to 24, and they come to him, and they look for him. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? This is verse 25. And remember, this first point is about two kinds of food. And Jesus discerns why they have looked for him. Jesus says this. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
for on him God the Father has set his seal. The last time Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, was also in a conflict dialogue, if you remember in chapter 3. Nicodemus came to him in the night, seeking Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says to Nicodemus too is, truly, truly, I say to you, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Anytime Jesus begins to claim with truly, truly, you know a conflict is about to happen. A debate is about to take place. And what he's discerning in their hearts is this. They're following him entirely for wrong reasons. They're following him not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, they're following Jesus because they thought they could feed him some more. He's kind of this, this a great feeder. We're hungry, and Jesus is here to feed us. And if we have Jesus around, how convenient it is, right? How convenient it is that he can multiply five loaves and two fish to feed everyone. And Jesus is saying to them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So there's two kinds of food there. There's a food that perish. There's a food that is finite. There's a food that sustains you only for a little while on the one hand. That's what they're looking for. That's the kind of food they're looking for. That's the kind of food they think Jesus will provide. And on the other hand, the Son of Man will offer a kind of food that will endure to eternal life. It's a food that sustains you. And here, friends, the gospel has been presented to you as food, as bread. It's that which sustains. See, the Bible talks about the gospel in so many different ways because it's so rich. You can't get to the bottom of it, right? Even in the Gospel of John alone, we saw different metaphors for the gospel. In John chapter 1, what is the gospel? That you become a child of God. In John chapter 2, what's the gospel? It's a kind of wine that brings you gladness. In John chapter 3, what's the gospel? That you are born again in a way where you're a new creation entirely. You're born from above. The Spirit creates you anew. In John chapter 4, the gospel is what? Living water. That whatever shames you have, whatever, whatever things that you've done in the past, God could cleanse those things away. The gospel covers your shame. John chapter 5, the gospel makes you whole. You thought you're incomplete. You thought you're broken. You thought you're a paralytic. The gospel causes you to be a whole human being again. And Jesus here in John chapter 6, the consistent theme of this chapter, of this dialogue, and the thing that he'll hammer again in all these exchanges is this, that the gospel is not merely the thing which sustains you, is the thing that causes you to endure. It feeds you. It nourishes you. It keeps you going. If you eat of this bread, if you feed from Christ, if you are in Him, you will no longer hunger, in verse 35 it says. The gospel, therefore, is not merely that which covers your shame. It's not merely that which recreates you anew. It's that which keeps you going from week to week. It's what nourishes you. It's what gets you up in the morning on Monday and gets you up in the morning on Sunday to go to church. It's the gospel that can motivate you day to day. That's what it is. It's your anchor. It's your identity. It's your security. And, and, and these uh, Jews, these so-called disciples are following Jesus because they think 
that the point of Jesus' coming is to give them food continually and repeatedly. But Jesus is here not only to offer food that is in a repeated and finite fashion, Jesus is here to offer food that will last forever. Why? Because we have a hunger underneath our hunger. We have a deeper hunger. We have a deeper thirst. We need something that keeps us going from week to week. And that's what food uh, signals, right? That's what food symbolizes. You know, a lot of us maybe say that we get hangry when we don't eat enough food. Why? Because when we don't eat enough food, when we get hungry, things irritate us. You know, we lash out on people. We, we get impatient, right? Things just don't go our way anymore. And, and you start to say this, if only I just have, you know, eat la rice bowl or something. Or nasi goreng kambing, you know, like, oh, things will just be better. And then suddenly, you eat your food or you have your breakfast or you have your coffee and you can go, you can go on with your day. Suddenly, your boss gets angry at you and you're okay. You know what, boss? I had a great meal this morning. <laughs> suddenly, you can take it. You know, but if you didn't have your coffee that morning, you didn't have your breakfast that morning, your boss comes at you and he's, you know, ranting about some particular problem that the company has, and then you're irritated. You're like, wow, why doesn't, why, I just need my coffee right now? But you can't say that, right? You can't say that to him or her. And so, and so you go away and you, you kind of, you know, maybe you need to vent to your friend or something like that. See, when you, when you don't, when you're not well fed, you're irritated. And, and by 2 p.m. you need a nap. Because you're tired by then, right? It's that food keeps you going. Food keeps you stable. Food keeps you balanced. Food keeps you poised. And Jesus is saying, the gospel does that. The gospel is that which feeds you in such a way that you can handle life, that you could sleep at night, that when bad things happen to you, you're not angry about it that you don't feel hungry, that you don't feel, that you don't feel like you need something for your life. And, and, and see, if food sometimes causes you to ask yourself, man, if only I just had some like nasi goreng with sambal mata or something, right? There's a different kind of food that we're also hungry about. Can you think about it? What are your deepest, deepest hungers? And how do you find your deepest hungers? These are the kind of questions that you ask to find your deepest hungers. What is it that you ask yourself about? And you say this to yourself, if only I had this, life would go well and I can go, go on with my life. If only I had this, I could go to my job and be happy. If only I had X, Y, or Z, I would be all right. For some of us, if only I had that promotion. For others of us, if only I had that girl or that guy. For others of us, if only we were married, maybe I'd feel more satisfied, more full. Or others of us, in the deepest depths of our thought, if only I was single again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I felt a kind of freedom. Others of us, yeah, there's a kind of nostalgia about the past. You know, things were just better back then. If only, if only I was back in my teens again. If only I was in my 20s again. If only I was in my 30s again. What sustains you? What is the thing that you think will satisfy you? And here's the scariest thought. Not that you have that deepest longing and, and you, you place it on the wrong things. These are all finite things, right? 
relationships, careers, um, the past, nostalgia, whatever it might be. The scarier thing, friends, is not that you have a deeper hunger that keeps you going, right? Because maybe that promotion keeps you going. Oh, once I get the promotion, this is why I'm working so hard. I need to get the promotion, right? Or maybe it's that girl or that, that marriage, or maybe it's your children, right? I'm working so hard because I want to get my kids to a good school, right? That's what fuels you. That's what keeps you going. That's what keeps you driven. That's what gets you up in the morning and that's what causes you to be able to sleep in that because you need rest. These are all finite things. That's not the scariest bit. That you misdirect it and you locate it on finite things that could never satisfy. The scariest bit is when you actually get it. You actually get it. You finally get the promotion. You finally get that house. You finally get that, that relationship. And guess what? That satisfaction doesn't last, does it? It doesn't last. And the scariest part is that feeling of disappointment because you thought you had it all. You thought you could get to the top and once you get to the top, you're gonna be all right. You're gonna feel satisfied. Nothing's gonna bother you anymore. You're not gonna get irritated anymore. You're not gonna have bad mornings anymore. You're not gonna have problems anymore. But what? The truth of the matter is, once you get it, you still get hungry the next day. And the scarier part is this. You not only get hungry the next day, you have another thing that you set your mind upon. Oh, maybe it's the next promotion. It's the next relationship. It's when my kids go to college. And then you get there, and then you realize what? Every success only leaves you emptier. Because why? Every time you get that success, you get disappointed because your hope was not fulfilled. It doesn't deliver. And some of us at that point try to distract ourselves. Maybe this is all there is to life. Suddenly it hits you. No matter what I want, no matter what I get, it leaves me emptier week after week. Some of us therefore live for the weekend. Some of us live for the weekend because now you think, oh, I thought I had everything I want. You know, it doesn't satisfy. I just need a drink. I just need to go out on Friday. And one week goes to the next, and months turn to years. And you live an emptier life because you get disappointed and disappointed and disappointed and disappointed. And you try to distract, distract, and distract. But no matter what happens, the thought haunts you. No matter what I get, it perishes. It doesn't sustain. So you distract, and it's a cycle. It's a dangerous cycle, and you're gonna grow old. You get bitter, you're gonna get cynical, you're gonna fail in relationships. Why? Because you don't have the food that sustains. You know, it's amazing. Do you know how much the US president makes in a year? For some, people, some of us, maybe we think of the US president as having the most important job in the world because, I don't know, somehow we, we care more about American politics than other countries. For some of us, maybe. I'm not saying all of us. Um, the U.S. president, apparently, a Google search would reveal, makes about $400,000 a year with $50,000 of uh, additional expenses that he can um, reimburse. So about four hundred fifty grand, give or take. $450,000 a year. That's not a bad salary, right? For, for running a country that size, for, for, for managing so many people, for keeping so many people happy, for, for making things run smoothly, that's... Probably a decent amount of money. But then Google 
friends, Google, the highest paid DJ in the world, Calvin Harris. He makes $66 million a year. And you would think, okay, okay, US president, huge responsibilities, Calvin Harris plays four notes on a keyboard. You listen to his songs, man, four notes. I'm telling you, right? I, I can play some music too, okay? I can, I, can replicate, I can replicate his music night and day, okay? Four notes, or don't get me started on the chain smokers, all right? So basic. Calvin Harris, a DJ, plays four notes, $66 million. U.S. president, $400,000. Forget Donald Trump, all right? Think about the previous presidents, all right? Uh, or, you know, that you might think is a little bit more respectable. All right, um, sorry, that was a political statement. Um, we can edit that out. Um, this is the church, we're about the spiritual kingdom, we're not, anyway, um, I'm sorry. That was a moment of weakness. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, but seriously, right, okay, just think about that, think about that. And, and by the way, no pastor is gonna make $66 million. <laughs> Unless we're preaching a different gospel, right? And, and you would think, you would think, you would think that a job and a responsibility of being a president of a country and the job of responsibility of taking care of the church of God has so much more weight, so much more importance, so much more seriousness, so much more liability, so much more responsibility. Why is it, do you think, that a maker of distractions like a DJ makes so much more money than those with weightier responsibilities like a teacher or a president? Why? Why? Because you know, you don't, want to think, you don't want to think about the serious stuff. Because you know that at the end of the day, you don't want those thoughts to come to your head. Blaise Pascal, the Catholic mathematician in the 18th century, he says that the one thing men fear the most is being alone in their rooms at night. Why do you think kings, he said, take so much effort to invest in flute players and jesters? Their version of our today's DJs. Flute players and jesters. Why do you think so? Because kings can't sleep at night because they thought they have it all together and they realize they still can't sleep because why? They're still not satisfied. It's a food that perish. And notice the anxiety of this crowd, right? We know from the rest of this chapter, we know from the rest of the context of the Gospel of John that this crowd is following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. So this desire, this, this ferocious seeking out that they crossed a sea just to follow Jesus is not primarily driven, friends, by a real desire to see him as bread, to see him as the true satisfaction that fuels you. It's an anxiety. It's anxiety. I gotta get this, ah, I can't make that kind of bread. I can't, I can't sustain myself that way. No, 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 I need, I need this guy. This guy can do it. It's anxiety. And Pascal says, this is why we drive ourselves and we put so much money, so much effort on entertaining ourselves. Why? One day, you know, you're gonna die. One day, you know that promotion's not gonna satisfy. You're gonna be disappointed again and again. And friends, Jesus is here telling you, he is the only one that can satisfy. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Do you believe that? What do you work for? 
What approval? Whose approval do you need? How do you know that you can go on day to day? Is it the approval of your wife? Approval of your husband? Approval of your boss? Approval of your parents? Approval of your kids? But here's what Jesus is saying. There's one eternal life that can keep you going. That's the bread of life. How do you know this? Where's the gospel? God approves of you so much. How do you know that? He sent his son to die in your place. What other approval do you need? What other fuel that could sustain you? And if that's your anchor, if that's how you know that you have the only approval you need, your, your secure identity, the thing that, that causes you to understand that you are forever secure in Jesus Christ, what else do you need? Suddenly, if you get fired, you're not that bothered. It's okay. You're not irritated. Things cross you. People, people blackmail you. People bother you. You get impatient. Then you think of the cross and suddenly, Lord, oh, blessed assurance, as the old hymn says, it is well with my soul, this blissful thought. All of my sins have been cast on him. Suddenly you're okay again. What is it that allows you to sleep at night? What is it that causes you to be able to sleep at night and say, everything's going to be okay. Take my job away. Take my relationship away. Take my family away. I don't need these distractions. I can tackle those disappointed, grumbling thoughts head on. And no need to distract myself on a Friday night because I have one true satisfaction, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the first point. Second point. Second point, I told you. The gospel is going to be there in every point. I need to be quicker here, friends, and, and we may not labor on every point exactly the same way. Look at, look at what they say here next. There's a food that perishes. There's a food that endures for eternal life. Look at verse 20, 28. They said to him, this is the Jews again. They, they retort back at him. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Notice the shift, okay? So, so Jesus says, look, you are anxious, you are laboring, like you're working, in other words. You're working for food that perishes. You're anxious, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs that I'm the eternal life, but you're working because you're anxious. That's why you crossed the sea. That's why you did all this work, to get to me. Because you, you're, you're, you're seeking a God of your stomachs, right? They, they, they don't get it. Jesus is saying it's not about what you do. It's about the bread that I provide for you. Look at verse 28. They retort back at him and look at what they say. What must we do then? You talk about this bread. It's, it sounds great. Okay, okay, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? That's your first emphasis. Look, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And notice two things about what they say here. Notice the priority. First, they say, what must we do? They put the priority on what they think they could accomplish, what they think they could earn, what they think they could be entitled to so they might earn this bread. To be doing the works of God. And the Greek of, of doing, the word doing, is literally work again. Labor, work, work. So, so it's literally, what must we do that we might be working the works of God? And notice the plural, works of God. What must be working to be working the works of God? That's literally what they ask Jesus. What kinds of works? How many times do we work to be doing the works of God? 
plural. In other words, it's, it's an ongoing effort, isn't it, Jesus? If, if you want us to sustain ourselves, right? If you want us to keep working for this bread, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll work for it. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You see that? Notice, notice he, he shifts the priority. The first thing they said was, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So what must we do? And then the works of God come second. But Jesus immediately comes back with a quick reply and he says, this is the work. So he flips it. The priority no longer becomes what you do. This is the work of God. And notice the singular noun, work. If for the Jews, they, they put the priority on what they must do and how many times they should do it, Jesus puts the priority on the singular, climactic, decisive work of God. It's the polar opposite of what they're implying. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And notice what He's saying here. This is the work of God, so the priority is a singular work of God, not what you do, so that you believe in Him whom He has sent. What is that work of God specifically? What is the result of that work of God? What does that work of God cause or affect? That work of God causes what? Your belief in Jesus Christ. In other words, your faith in Jesus Christ is not a result of your doing, it's a result of what God does. How do you believe in Jesus? By an act of free will? By an act of your free choice? By an act of your own rational understanding such that you could deduce, oh, today I need to follow Jesus. Or, you go with what Jesus says here and he says what? This is the work of God, that you believe in him. Notice the priority. It's a singular definitive act of God. And you know this to be true. You know this to be true. How many times have you sinned and you've said this to yourself, I need to do better. I just got to keep trying. I just got to keep working. I'll do better next week. This is what I got to do to be doing the works of God, right? I just got I to I gotta keep trying. I got to try harder. I, I got to do it. And, and then you think to yourself, right, this, this becomes your prayer. This becomes your morning routine maybe. Or this becomes like me if you pray at night, your evening routine, right? Your prayers go something like this. No, 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 no. That's, that's sin. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. No, no, no. Do this instead. Do this instead. Do this instead. No, no, no. That's sin. Th th this is what I need to do. I got to try harder. And that becomes your weekly routine. And guess what? It never works, does it? You keep going back. You keep going back. And all those moments where you thought to yourself, don't do it, don't do it, you got to try harder. You get more and more disappointed in yourself and you spiral down and you spiral down and you spiral down and one day you're going to give up. And one day you're just going to say in your old age, well, that's just who I am. I can't be doing the works of God. I'm just going to give up. That's our natural proclivity. That's our natural tendency, right? You will want to say, I just got to try harder. That's not going to work. That's not going to change you from the inside out. The only way, friends, that it could work is if you, in those moments of desperation and those moments of sin, is that you stop saying to yourself, I got to try harder, but instead you tell yourself the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, that the song 
rightfully says that the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. I would not have loved you first, lest you love me first. That's the only thing that's going to melt your heart. And at that point, friends, at that point, if you realize that you can't do it on your own, that you cannot work this out on your own, that you can't get better on your own, that you're completely vulnerable before God, that you can't be working so that He might keep giving you this bread, this next thing is going to happen. You're going to feel exposed. You're going to feel naked. You're going to feel vulnerable. And the first thing you're going to try to do is this. But Lord, I've done a lot, right? You owe me this bread. Right? Look at what they say next. They start, their rebellion starts to show up a little bit more clearly. Right? So if there's two constructing ways to get food. One is just self-effort. I just got to be doing the works of God. The second is this is the singular work of God, that God is the one that causes to give you faith. Jesus then said to them, I mean, sorry, this is verse 30. Look at what they say next. So they said to him, what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. If you believe that salvation is by grace alone, that even your faith in God was caused by God, you're going to feel so vulnerable because why? You realize God could do whatever He wants with you. You're not entitled to anything. He doesn't owe you anything. What you're going to grasp at next is this. Oh, I can't be this vulnerable. I've done things. And so there are two ways to interpret the Bible. There's two ways to read the Bible. Look at what they say there. What work do you do? And in verse 31, it says, Our Father gave us manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, look, Jesus, like, okay, this, this is a great thing that you're talking about. You're saying this is all a work of God, but, but look, this can't just be all a work of God. We, we've been reading our Bibles. We, have, we come from centuries, traditions of families who've been reading our Bible. And look, I'm telling you, it's not about a bread of eternal life. It's what? Bread that comes from heaven that, 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 fed, that feeds us, right? It's a finite bread. They're resisting what Jesus is saying because they know if what Jesus says is right, that means everything they've done, all their traditions of Bible reading comes to nothing. And notice this, friends. False disciples quote the Bible too. Just, just as an aside, False disciples quote the Bible too. Every, every tradition of Christianity, false or true, they all quote the Bible. What makes a difference? It's not whether or not you quote the Bible. It's why you quote the Bible and whether you understand what is quoted in the Bible. And their way of quoting the Bible here is to say what? Just like in John chapter 5. You thought that in the Bible you have eternal life. When you fail to understand that the Bible points to me, they're saying to Jesus, you're talking about this eternal bread I know nothing about. I know about finite bread. And how do I know about finite bread? Well, our fathers had finite bread. That's what God does. God provides for us finite bread. God has always been giving us this, this bread. We know our tradition. In other words, we know our theology. 
we can justify ourselves. We're, we're, we're looking at you because you're a prophet of God, aren't you, Jesus? Well, you can give us bread in the same way we know how bread has been delivered to us. And what is Jesus saying? The point of Moses and the bread is not about the manna in the wilderness in and of itself. They're once again signs and not the thing in itself. And Jesus is going to hammer it again one more time. It's the Father who determines. It's, Moses is not an end in himself. It's the Father who gives bread. I am the true bread of life. And they're going to grumble. Last point, friends. There are two ways to read the Bible. Either you're going to justify yourself with your theology, or you're going to have a theology that points to Jesus Christ. All right, final point. Jesus said to them, sorry, look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, Sir, they said to him, sorry, Sir, give us this bread always. Which, by the way, every commentator recognizes that they're not being sincere at this point. Because in verse 41, they have already started grumbling. And the word grumbling is very um, self-conscious. It's the same word as in, in Exodus when the Israelites grumbled against God because all they had was bread to eat and they wanted meat. It's the same word. These Jews are repeating the sins of their forefathers, in other words. So when they said to him in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always, they're no longer being sincere. They're, they're, they're giving up, in other words. Oh, whatever this bread you're talking about, this, 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 can't be, this can't be it. And Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And here's the kicker, friends. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 34, the Jews started really exposing their hearts. They started being sarcastic at Jesus. They started to grumble at him, right? What does Jesus do? He says, I've told you I'm the bread of life, yet you don't believe. Verse 37, but all that the Father gives me will believe. What's he saying? Make the inference. What's he saying? The reason why you don't believe, O oh grumbling unbeliever, is because the Father did not give you to me. Let me let me just let's just let's just take that to sink in for a second here. Look at Jesus' response. They grumbled at Jesus, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I've told you I'm the bread. You don't believe. Why do you not believe? Listen, all that the Father gives me will believe. You don't believe. What's the inference? The Father hasn't given you to me. Just let that sink in for a second and notice the implications. And this is an implication, by the way, of the second point, right? That this is the work of God that you might believe. You don't even get to have faith 
We cannot have faith in God apart from God's faith in us. We cannot have faith in God apart from God choosing of us. We cannot have the strength to even follow in any, we can't even consider, we can't even consider who He is apart from Him choosing us first. And yet you don't believe why? Because the Father hasn't given you to us. It's the ultimate and final rebuke. Some of you come to church and maybe you've, you've said this in your head. This, this is what I'm afraid, I'm afraid some of us say in our heads, here's what I'm afraid we ask. Well, I don't know about this Christianity thing. You know, I think it might be true, but maybe when I'm older, I'll, I'll become a Christian. It's God's job to love me. You know, maybe when I, when I become older, I still want to have a lot of fun in this life, right? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll go to church for a while. Maybe sometimes I won't go to church, but you know what? One day I'll be serious. One day I'll be serious about my faith. I'll just sit on the fence for a while. Maybe some of you are saying that precisely right now. Maybe, maybe as you come to church today, you're thinking, I don't know about this Christianity thing. I just need time. You know, I've got my whole life to live. I know I thought that way back when. Maybe at your deathbed when you can sin all you want. If this is really all about grace, right? If this is all about grace, uh, on my deathbed, after I live every, anything I want, I'll get my, my salvation insurance. And then I'll have faith in Jesus. And then I'll, I'll, be, I'll go to heaven. It's, it's not so easy, right? Don't play games with God. You don't get to decide when to believe. You don't get to decide when to have faith in Him. And if you are grumbling in your heart right now, consider, consider this. Has God rejected you? Or has the Father given you to Christ? Friends, there's no easy way to say this. There's really none. The only, there's only two possible responses you can have to this text right now. Two possible responses. And I'll close with this. You're either going to be in your seat and you're going to say, this is unfair. This is unfair. I thought God loves everyone. This is unfair. No, no, this is not the, what the, this is not the kind of God I want to follow. This, this is not the God of love that I thought I knew. This is not the God of the Bible that I thought I knew. You're going to grumble in your hearts and you're going to get angry at God. And guess what? That's exactly what they did. And they left him. That's the first response. Your only second possible response is this. This strikes so much fear in you. So much, so much fear in you that you feel the weight of your sin, that you feel naked and exposed. You're so fearful that God has not yet chosen you, that you are left with the words, where else can I go? I got nowhere to run. I lie naked and exposed and ashamed. I grumbled in God, against God. I got nowhere else to go. Lord, choose me, please. Lord, may I be one of those that the Father has given to the Son and the Son causes to sustain until the last day. Those are your only two possible reactions. And I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what's going on in your mind. Let it be that second one. Let us strike fear in your hearts that you are a sinner. We are all sinners. We can't even love God unless He first loved us. 
and let it first strike you first and foremost now that the Father has given you to the Son, that you might believe in Him and have eternal life. God has given you the right to become a child of God. And notice, not everyone, therefore, is a child of God. If you're given a right to become a child of God, you weren't the child of God. I pray. I pray that your response would be the second one. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we ran a hellbound race, blinded to the consequences of our sins. So blinded, Lord God, that we don't even see you as desirable. So blinded, Lord God, that we thought we were our own creators, that we reject your authority, that you're not only sovereign over us, and therefore you could do whatever you please with us, but we're also sinners such that you have every right to cast us away. But Lord God, may we not grumble forever. Even now, Lord God, cause us to turn back to you. Cause us not, Father, to say we could do better, but cause us to redirect our souls, our attentions, our, our, our everything, Father. The thing that sustains us, the thing that lets us sleep at night, the thing that feeds us, the thing that nourishes us, Father, to be this, that you approve of us and that you have given us to your Son so that your Son might die the death we should have died, so that we might live in Him, and we might live differently today. Let us not postpone. Let us not play with Your sovereignty. Let us now, Father, feel the pull of the Spirit. Let it melt our hearts, not only the fear that causes us to tremble of whether or not You have elected us, Father, but the assurance that You truly did have chosen us in Jesus Christ. Father, help us rejoice in this absolute security that even before the foundation of the world, you have considered us before we've done anything good or bad. And you've loved us even before we were born. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.